This year, the San Diego Union-Tribune has been reporting a multi-part series investigating the U.S. asylum system. It's called Returned. The latest part of the series looks at what happens when the asylum system does not protect someone who had a legitimate fear of death. The series lays bare the many complications and inequities of a system meant to provide refuge to the world's most vulnerable people, and showing that the system's shortcomings have been deepened due to many changes in immigration policy. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Kate Morrissey, you cover immigration for the San Diego Union-Tribune, and you've been working on this project for some time. And this story really focuses on this one individual that you happen to meet by circumstance. Uh, can you tell me how you found this individual? So I knew that I wanted to tell the story of what happened to somebody that the system did not protect. Um, and I wanted to understand what that looked like. You know, we hear um, anecdotally about these cases of, of somebody who was not protected and, and deported and then harmed, often killed um, by the person or government that they were fleeing. Um, and so I was, I was looking for um, one of those cases to, to really dive into and, and understand. And so the way that you do that, um, because there's no database that, that sort of definitively tracks these things, there are people who try, but the way that they do it is by reading news clippings in, in local, you know, local journalist work in Honduras or El Salvador or Guatemala. And so I was working with one of our interns um, to, to do that. And I happened upon an article in um, an online newspaper called Contra Corriente uh, in Honduras. And it described this young man, Jovin Estrada Villanueva. Um, and it said that he was a B-boy. Um, and that just, you know, it, it just clicked for me that like, this is the person whose story I have to tell and I'm going to be able to find him because I happen to also dance. I'm, I've been um, breaking since 2005. And so I knew, you know, that I would be able to find him and find ways to, to communicate with his family and friends. And I was um, through social media channels pretty quickly once I had that information and, and started setting up, you know, um, figuring out how to, how to get down there and, and meet with them in a way that was safe for them. So uh, it, was, it was really through hip hop that this story even happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you give us a recap of what led to Villanueva choosing to seek asylum in the U.S.? Uh, can you walk us through that kind of first phase? Sure. So he, um, his day job was, was working driving moto taxis. And that industry is, is one that's sort of particularly uh, dangerous because it's, it's very vulnerable to gang extortion. Um, and you're also, you know, traveling through territories that could be um, contested or, or passing from one gang's territory to another, which complicates who you have to pay extortion to, or um, you might seem suspicious to one if you just crossed from the territory of the other. So um, he was doing he was doing this work because it's also um, one of the ways to to make a little bit more money than than if you work in, in one of the clothing factories down there. And um, as while he was he was doing that work, he actually witnessed a murder. He saw a fellow moto taxi driver get killed and he began to receive threats. 
and um, he took those threats very seriously, as you know, uh, most people living there would, I think, because of the way that gangs tend to follow up on these threats. And so he sold his moto taxi um, and paid a smuggler and, and made his way north to the border um, just west of Hidalgo, Texas. Hmm. And this is when he started the process of claiming asylum, but then uh, things didn't go according to plan. Can you explain that credible fear interview that he was uh, taking part in? Sure. So when somebody comes to the border and doesn't have a visa that would allow them to enter the United States, they go into this process called expedited removal which basically means that they can get ordered deported by a border official. They don't have to go before an immigration judge and it speeds up that deportation process. But there's um, there's sort of a pause button that was put in on this process to check and see if people um, might need to be put into the asylum screening process. And because the asylum system itself is, is sort of its own screening process to decide who meets the definition of a refugee. And so this is a screening process for the screening process um, to have these credible fear interviews to say, well, is this person likely to to be successful in the asylum system? Um, and so he he had his interview and he did not pass it. Um, it's still not totally clear exactly why he didn't pass. Um, the government has been sitting on my public records request since last year to um, better understand that piece. Uh, but we, we go into to a lot of detail in the story based on you know, conversations with different attorneys and experts about you know, what cases like his tend to get stuck on. Mm -hmm. And it seems that the way that the current asylum system is set up, people in situations like his in which the threat comes from gangs, they tend to have a worse time passing the interview, correct? It's definitely a sticking point. Um, so asylum is meant to protect people who are fleeing from their government or from a group that the government cannot or will not control. And so you have to be able to articulate or give evidence for or explain in a way that satisfies the asylum officer that your government cannot or will not control this gang. Um, and having the evidence to be able to do that as somebody who's just made, you know, this long and, and difficult journey to the border, who probably doesn't yet have an attorney or know, like, even that they're going to have to do this step of the process. Um, it can be very difficult to, you know, be be in this interview all of a sudden and have to come up with that information in a way that satisfies the official. Mm -hmm. And uh, he didn't pass, and then ultimately it was sent back to Honduras. Can you tell us about that period of time? Yeah, so he was he was deported within a matter of months from when he came to the border, um, and then he spent about a room uh, spent about a month just hiding in his room and and very afraid um, to go outside, and then he sort of came to the the resolution that he needed to, you know, get back to life, he needed to start working again and find a way to economic economically contribute to his family. And, and he threw himself pretty hard back into dancing and into the hip hop community and, and really trying to be an organizational force and a motivational force um, for young people in his country. And 
so roughly, uh, you know, a year and a couple of months later, as he was uh, driving his moto taxi, which he returned to that work because that was the way that um, he was able to make money. There, there wasn't really another viable option for him as he saw it. Um, as he was driving his moto taxi, he was, he was shot dead um, in the street. Mm -hmm. And how common is it that someone returned ends up being killed because this is the exact thing they're running from? We don't know, you know, statistics to give to that question, but what we do know and what we found while we were, uh, we were down in Honduras is that so many people that we talked to knew stories of someone this had happened to. Um, if you do searches in the newspapers, you find article after article about someone who was deported and then killed. We even, you know, in, in this project mentioned the story of a man who was followed from the airport after being deported and killed while he was still wearing the shoes that were issued to him in U.S. immigration custody. Um, because, you know, the way that corruption works, the, the gangs were able to get a, get an eye on the, on the deportee list and, and know that he was coming. Um, mm. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you tell people why you're there and, and the, the work that you're doing, they're like, oh yeah, like so-and-so, or it's, it's, uh, it was like everybody knew of, of at least one person that this had happened to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like in Honduras, it's becoming a tragic fact of life. Can you explain the economic and political conditions that have led to this degree of instability in Honduras? So there are there are so many layers to to the way things are now. Um, starting off on just you know a very basic level, um, most of the people living in Honduras live below the poverty line. It's somewhere between 60 and 70% of the country lives below the poverty line. Um, working at most of the jobs that are available, you don't make enough to be able to buy what they call the roughly translated from Spanish, the basic basket, like your basic sort of like the food that you're going to need to eat and that, and that sort of thing. Um, and so it's, it's really, it's really tough for people. And so where, uh, where Yovin is from, there are a bunch of clothing factories that people work at. A lot of those actually have ties to U.S. businesses. We saw um, so many factories flying American flags when we were going around down there. Um, and the people who work in the factories make very little. Um, but a lot of people moved to the region when those factories sprung up and the resources to create infrastructure for this sort of sudden influx of people just didn't happen. So you had people, you know, building houses on land that wasn't even really, you know, theirs and, and how, you know, houses is a, it, they're, you know, building these very sort of rough structures out of, you know, whatever they could find to build with. There's no, potable water, there was no electricity, the roads are terrible, you know, and so you have them starting from that point, you know, no, very little access to childcare, many of many of these folks are single parents, and how do you go to work all day and, and then, you know, leave the kids, and where are they going to go? Um, schools are very underfunded. Um, one of this one of the towns that we were in, 
um, there were two teachers for about 250 children. And if the townspeople wanted any more teachers, they were going to have to pay their salaries. The government wasn't going to add any additional teachers. Um, the schools get full. And once they get full, they won't take any more. So if your child um, is not registered before they get full, then your child's not going to school that year. Um, and so there's like, there's so many ways in which the system is working against people and, and just not supporting these very basic needs for, for life, right? And so in, in those conditions, you have um, these, these gangs that, that come up and, and the cartels also are, are, are in Honduras, you know, moving drugs north to the United States. That's a, it's a big part of that, that path. And, and all of these sort of criminal entities are tied in with the government as well. You have corrupt police officers, you have corrupt politicians. Um, the brother of the president was, was, um, convicted here in the United States on narco trafficking charges not that long ago. Um, and, you know, so you have even people rising up politically in the country to demand change and, and the government squashing that and using live rounds on protesters. You know, we heard um, a lot about that when we were down there as well. And unfortunately, you know, um, didn't have room to put all of that into the story. But uh, there's just it, the system is is squashing the people at every turn. And, and the government is pretty much, you know, taking this hands off approach and really sort of idolizing and, and mimicking um, a very sort of United States approach of like, you know, emphasizing privatization and, and all these things in a place where there's not enough economic structure or support to, to begin to work with that kind of system. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a real perfect storm for gangs and other extra judicial organizations to gain power just because if people don't have anything that makes it really easy to just use violence and force and threats to get whatever you want one way or the other kind of you know i don't know what politically is the way out of those kind of situations exactly and the you know if you're if you're a child coming up in a neighborhood where this is happening and and your parent is absent either because they're working all the time or maybe even tried to head north to to make more money to send back for you and you don't have anybody caring for you and there's this gang and and they're you know reaching out a hand to you like what do you what do you choose to do and so all of these things sort of build on themselves to create this this cycle and and this system that that's just not helping anybody and going back to the u.s asylum system in what ways has it been built to fail these people because from what you described it does make sense that people would have legitimate fear of being prosecuted and killed and asylum is a way that you're supposed to be able to go to a place like the united states and seek refuge is the fact that people are being turned away something that was baked into the system when it was built or is this something that has always kind of been there and made worse due to the policies of the trump administration that's a that's a really great question, and I think it's a little bit of all of the things. Um, even when we look back in the very early days of the U.S. asylum system in the 1980s, you see discrimination against Central American claims, particularly claims from El Salvador, Guatemala, um, and so 
we've never really seen the system fully adjust from that, right? Like back then it was um, a discrimination based on anti-communism, right? We didn't, we didn't want to give asylum to people who were more communist minded, who had been pushing back against more right-wing dictators. Um, and that sort of morphed into what a lot of advocates today would call a more um, just straight up uh, sort of racist or race-based discrimination um, where, you know, people from these countries are, are looked down on and, and, and seen as lesser by the system. And so, um, you know, there's, there's definitely an element of that. We've definitely seen from the Trump administration a, a targeting of Central Americans in the way that rhetoric about the asylum system comes out and in the way that changes to the asylum system happen. But I do want to put an asterisk on that because a lot of things that are done with Central Americans in mind to the system do also affect people from all over the world. And so I don't want to diminish the way that these changes have affected other folks. But we do we do definitely see that rhetoric coming very strong, saying that this is particularly to address folks from Central America, which is, um, you know, I think it's really notable and that these are the countries that are closest to us. Asylum is something that you can only get once you get your feet to the border to ask for it. And so, it would make sense that the people who are closest to us are the ones who are going to come um, in larger numbers because just geographically uh, you're going to have an easier time getting there. And so to have something that's really trying to deter our closest neighbors from coming, I think that, you know, there's something very real there about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For someone seeking to make immigration more restrictive, it's kind of, the easiest boogeyman to use. And that's what we've seen from Stephen Miller and many others in the administration. For sure. Mm -hmm. And despite all of this, and despite even the history going back, you know, into the eighties of, you know, people in Central America not getting their fair shake in the system, are Hondurans still willing to risk seeking asylum? Has it continued as it has? So, when we were there, we, you know, definitely saw um, people who were still, you know, in the process of getting ready to leave or had just left or whose families had recently been split apart by, by migration. Um, you know, we think of, I guess, from, from sort of recent events in this country, we think of family separation as something that happens here or happened here at our border um in a particular time by u.s officials but it, when you go to a country like honduras you see very quickly that you know when a family member chooses to leave there's a family separation that happens there as well um oftentimes you know it's a parent leaving a child behind or maybe one parent and child leaving and and the other staying um and so you do have an additional instability um uh, created by those separations um, and I think I've moved slightly sideways from your question. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it's understandable. I mean, you know, the situation as you described are exactly the reasons why anyone would seek asylum. And even if there is more targeted pushback, you know, in the past four years, 
people are still going to try. They are. And I think, you know, there's there's something that's sort of grown into the the culture of of sort of idolizing and idolizing the United States. Um, I remember seeing the American flag on a lot of, you know, just little shops that we were passing or car dealerships and things like that. And I asked, you know, our fixer, like, why, why is that flag on everything? And he said, oh, it's because they're trying to say they have American goods. They have superior goods, superior goods, right? Like that was the, the, the message that at the marketing, right, is, is that, is that idea. And it's, it's very pervasive um, when you're there and, you know, talking with folks, you know, uh, so many people brought up this idea of the American dream. And I, I think, you know, for me, that made it even more um, sort of pertinent when, when Yovin's friend brought up this idea of the Honduran dream and just, you know, what it means to choose to stay in that country and to know what you're facing in that choice and, and what that must feel like to have to make that choice about the country that you're from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one thing that often gets lost in discussions about immigration and asylum is that these aren't easy choices. These are choices that people make after trauma, stress, and, you know, difficult conversations with their family that, you know, it almost seems foolish to reduce it down to like, you know, these little headlines and short scripts we have for the ways that immigration has changed and you know even from the beginning was flawed definitely and it's it's such a complex web of things that can push somebody to go and and you know maybe the thing that was the last straw in their mind is not you know all of the things that happened before that led them to that sort of final like all right i'm gonna go um, and sometimes it's whichever thing is the last straw for that person is the thing that's going to come out of their mouth when they're asked why they're here. And if that one thing doesn't line up with our picture of what asylum is supposed to be for, what the, or what the, um, the asylum officer or the judge's picture of what asylum is supposed to be for, then that person's, you know, going to end up deported, even if some of the other things that have happened to them that sort of led them to that moment are things that would have counted. So uh, this is the third installment in this series. What's coming next? We have one more installment that we're working on. Um, and this one, uh, my hope is that it will be a little more uh, forward looking. Uh, this series has you know, been a combination of the present and the past. So far, we've looked at sort of where things are at or, or where they were at um, back in February prior to some of the changes with the pandemic. Um, and we've looked at, you know, the history of, of the system's capriciousness. We've looked at the history of how the system came to be um, and, and some of the historical issues that have, have been a part of it. And so I'm hoping to look a little bit ahead now at, at some of the different choices that could be made to, to change the system um, and also to help bring a little bit more of a picture into how this system, which, like I said, is a screening process, fits into this sort of larger global picture of what what we as a world have decided to do about the issue of forced displacement. Yeah, and certainly uh, there's increased pressure and scrutiny on the way the United States handles immigration policy. So, you know, people in many cases are demanding change. So it'll be interesting to see your expertise on this incredibly complicated system. 
Well, thank you. I uh, hope I don't disappoint. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had a series of previous conversations on this issue that I'll be linking to the show notes. So if you uh, heard some terms you weren't certain about, uh, feel free to search our archive, search Kate Morrissey, and there are many, many episodes about the intricacies of this ongoing system. And I just add to that, I'm also happy to answer readers' questions if anyone ever wants to send me an email. All that stuff is on our website and always happy to do that. All right. Kate Morrissey, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix. As voters cast their ballots this month, check out our election coverage all in one place on our elections dashboard. That's San Diego Tribune.com slash election dashboard. All one word. To support our journalism, go to uniontrib.com slash subscribe. Until next time.